chapter 6. It will be today in verse 21, 22, 23, and 24. And then the end shall come. That was a Bible joke, if you didn't catch it. Sorry. Here we come to the end of the book of Ephesians. This will mark, if I counted correctly, week 82 in the book of Ephesians. I went back and counted, so I'm getting a head nod from the back. <clears throat> 82 weeks. It's not counting the breaks we took for, uh, for a couple other series in the midst of that, but that's 82 weeks in the book of Ephesians. Um, Still doesn't compare to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' 257 sermons in the book of Ephesians. Uh, But 82 has been good, um, and I hope has been enjoyable. I'm so thankful, as I reflected on this this week, I'm so thankful to the Lord for what He has done through this book. The preaching of this book, the learning and living of this book has forever changed our church. Forever. For those who have had ears to hear and eyes to see, their hearts have grown. They've grown to love the gospel more. And the genuineness of this love for the gospel is being shown increasingly through their righteous acts. And for that, I'm so thankful for. You know, we chose to preach through Ephesians because we believed our flock largely needed, I would say, three things at the time. One was this, I'm just going to walk through these really quick, and these will, this will also serve as a bit of a recap for the book of Ephesians. The first one was this, we needed to grow in knowing the gospel. We needed to grow in knowing the gospel. I believe faithfully that the gospel has been preached in every passage of this entire book. We need to know the gospel. We needed to know the gospel, and we still have room to grow in knowing the gospel clearly. But we needed to learn the gospel better, and then who we were, and who God has made us to be now, because of this gospel. This we learned in the first three chapters of the book, largely. We learn just, again, as a bit of a recap here, that God chose some to be saved, but not because of any merit in themselves. Instead, what he says, instead of merit, is quite the opposite, that we were actually dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. But then it says, continuing in Ephesians 2, that but God made us alive through the redeeming work of His Son, Jesus. And that a part of this gospel that his people, his redeemed people, are now a part of his plan to exalt actively Jesus by the end of this age. And those in this room whom God has truly redeemed are now children of God, citizens of his kingdom, united in Christ because of this gospel. Again, we sought to learn what that meant. And we still have room to grow in that. Second, we needed to begin learning that this gospel, or at least continue learning that this gospel must, must impact every single corner of our lives. That there are implications of the gospel for every aspect of our lives. Let me review some of the highlights, some of the, of some of the aspects that 
Paul even draws out explicitly for us. These we learned in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He begins with, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What's Paul saying? That's kind of another way of saying that the gospel is going to impact the manner in which you walk. Every aspect of it. No exceptions. That if we're not thinking to filter every action of our life through the gospel, then we're not thinking as people who believe the gospel. So to kind of highlight a few of these things that Paul talks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6, here we go. Because of the gospel, we should be people who are humble. Humble. Gentle. Patient. Bearing with one another in love. Humble. Gentle. Patient. You should look at every instance of your life and ask yourself, are you displaying humility? Are you being gentle? Have you shown patience? Are you bearing with one another in love? Another highlight, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Understand, this is in the context of the local church. So within the body, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Many in this church are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, for which I am very thankful for. There's also this idea of being eager to grow up into spiritual maturity. To grow up in knowing God and living righteously. Another highlight, the body. The body, not the elders, our responsibility for doing the ministry. The elders' responsibility is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Well, certainly the, the elders have their own ministry. But the work of caring for each other and all like intricacies and, and all these various expressions should be done by the body. The elders are there to help have that and make that and equip that to happen. I was encouraged by a proclamation that someone made recently about how helpful the body has been in their life. I was encouraged by that because it was a sign of Russ and I's equipping of the body to care for these people. So the body should do the work of the ministry, and the elders should equip them to do that. something we learned again in the book of Ephesians. Another highlight is that we should give no, absolutely no, opportunity to the devil. And one of the ways that we give opportunity to the devil is by corrupting talk. He says in that passage, you can go back and read it, that we should only speak in ways that build up the body of Christ. That anything short of that is sin. And giving room to the devil. Not just in your life, but in the life of the church. Let me give you another application of that. We should only have conversations that seek to bring unity among the body. More on that in a bit. He said, think about this. There would be grace to those who hear. There would be grace to those who hear. We'd be careful because 
in our arrogance, we can define for ourselves what we think is grace to those who hear. Another highlight. He says that we should be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Do we know what that means? Like, tender-hearted. He says, forgiving one another. Like, that our disposition be one of forgiveness. Again, anything less than these is sin. Is not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Period. Like, so how are we to forgive one another? Like, to what extent? To what measure? By what motivation? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Right? So, there's this connectedness, again, of, to the gospel. Like, Paul's getting these little kind of shots in there of how do, we, how do we forgive and how do we, because of the gospel. So, if I can't forgive, if I can't be tenderhearted, if I can't be hu- humble, if I can't have conversations that simply build up the body, if I can't have conversations that bring unity in the body, if I cannot be kind to one another, then I'm not believing in the forgiveness that is mine through Christ that is a gift of the Father. Right? It's connected, right? Back to the gospel. And I love how Paul connects for us in this book that if you can't or aren't doing these things, then you don't get the gospel. I posted from my study this past week For others to read this quote from J.C. Ryle. It said this, Let us beware of any hope that does not exercise a sanctifying influence over our hearts, lives, tastes, conduct, and conversation. What's he saying? Beware of any claim to the gospel that doesn't find itself changing the way we live. Okay, so but he's calling it hope, right? And he goes on to describe this hope that is not exercising a sanctifying influence over us. He says this, it is mere base metal and counterfeit coin. It lacks the mint stamp of the Holy Ghost and will never pass current in heaven. A man may talk of his hope as much as he pleases, but he has none in reality. His religion is a joy to the devil, a stumbling block to the world, a sorrow to true Christians, and an offense to God. This is the person who claims to have a hope in the gospel, but does not live in light of the gospel. That he is an offense to God. We all stand in danger of this. But Paul says if we love Jesus and believe his gospel, then we will be changed. We will live differently. Not perfectly, eventually, but not perfectly now, but we will be changed. I'll tell you, here's the more and more of life as I've gone through, you know, the past few years. It seems that much more of this is coming down to the issue of pride. So we got to think, think in terms of like, if I love the gospel, how am I going to live? And we want to go, okay, well, I got this box to check and this box to check and this box to check. I would encourage you to only be concerned most fundamentally with one box. You know what I'm saying. Don't go make it a box to check. You get what I'm saying. But that box, if you're going to have one box, it's going to be fight for humility. Fight for dependence on the Father. Not on yourself. Not on other people. Dependence on the Father. What are all of these, all these things that Paul's talking about in 4, 5, and 6, when he's saying you should be living this way, why? Because you believe the gospel. Why? What, what's he really saying? He's saying you should live this way because of your humble dependence and trust and need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
someone who's not living these ways is dependent and needy of something else other than Jesus. So if we love Jesus and believe his gospel, then we will be changed for the good. We will live in a manner worthy of our calling. The third thing that we were hoping to see happen um, was this awareness of spiritual warfare. And that if these two big things, the gospel and life, like whole gospel, whole life, if you can remember back that far, that if those get connected, if the whole gospel is believed, it begins to impact the entire life, that there's going to be warfare. That Satan is going to try to have his way in this church and in people's lives. I truly believe that in many lives of this church, including your elders, that these things are being connected. That God is being glorified and that Satan hates it. As Rusty said, going down the road the other day, he goes, Satan must be bored to be messing with our little church. And I said, yeah, I agree. But I think Satan hates it when any of God's children begin to live faithfully in light of the gospel. This is why we need God's strength through this armor. Right, but what, what, what it, but if you haven't picked up on it, what is God doing in this armor talk, right? He's pointing us back to the gospel. Like, look at the aspects of the armor. He's pointing us back to the truth, pointing us back to hope in Jesus. He is saying you need to believe the gospel and live in light of the gospel. You need to believe and trust that Jesus died, that you are redeemed, if truly you are. And now be changed. Live now in light of your calling. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge. It will not happen without a fight. Easy believism is not a descriptor of a true follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen that way. I'd venture to say the harder you fight for faith, the harder the enemy fights against. Well now, kind of recapping through the book of Ephesians, I bring you to the last few verses. And I think you will not be surprised if you have any understanding of the general flow of Ephesians and what Paul's been trying to accomplish. You will not be surprised by where he takes us. Look with me in verse 21 of chapter 6. He says this, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we continue here in Ephesians, as we kind of conclude here in the book of Ephesians, Father, that you would be glorified, the hearts would be humbled, softened. Father, all of our hearts would come out today loving you more than we did. And if we don't, may that be a warning to us. For it's in your son's name, amen. So Paul was a lover of people. We see that all throughout this book. You don't say these kinds of hard things unless you love people. You see, Paul was a good theologian, missionary, church planter, if you will. And one who is good at such things is one who loves people. And Paul says to his readers, 
and says to those who are following Christ today, those who love Jesus, be encouraged in the Lord. Be encouraged in the Lord. So what's going on? What? This is just the closing. These are the few verses that we just kind of skip over, right? We just kind of and move on to the next book of the Bible. That's kind of like our four verses of free pass so we can hurry up and get on to the next thing. But here's what's happening. Paul sends Tychicus to encourage your hearts. Paul cares about the hope of these people. This friend of Paul's was, was a brother in the family of God. You can go look in the book of Acts and Colossians and 2 Timothy. He served with Paul for some time. He was likely the one who delivered the letter to Ephesus. And he came, Paul sends him to inform concerning Paul. How Paul is doing. I want you to notice something. The implication of this is that the people in Ephesus cared how Paul was doing. Paul was concerned that they knew how he was doing. Those in Ephesus, the implication is that those in Ephesus cared how Paul was doing. They loved Paul. They cared for Paul. I'm sure they spent hours, I mean we're speculating here, but I'm sure they spent hours praying for Paul, who was in jail. So I would ask you the same question, or I would ask you a question based on this implication. Do you have the same concern and care for the people preaching you the gospel Do you have the same concern and care for the people preaching you the gospel? I think of at least two categories of people. Your elders, your DNA leaders, let me ask you, are you concerned for their well-being? Are you praying for them? Do your conversations with other people show that you care for them? Are you protecting them? Do your actions and your words of your mouth show this? You see, they they cared about Paul. They were concerned about Paul. That's why Paul's sending them correspondence. Again, if you love the gospel, this will be true. If not, it won't. So he came, Paul, or Tychicus came to inform about how Paul was doing. And he came to encourage their hearts in Jesus. He said, what, what does he mean by to encourage them? Was he just like, hoo, hoo, rah, rah, you know, let's be happy about Jesus? No, the encouragement, I think, is simply this. An encouragement to trust the Father and His gospel and then to live in light of it. He wasn't going to tell them anything new other than, that Paul had, other than what Paul had written other than how Paul was doing himself. You see, you know, there's more to it than this, but this is the core of Christian encouragement. As a Christian, if you're not encouraged by Let's believe the gospel and let's go live like we believe it. If you're not encouraged by that, then you're not a Christian. Christians are encouraged when they hear about the blood of Jesus. You see, only those who believe the gospel are encouraged by gospel truth. Otherwise, it's either just something that kind of floats over the head, one, one ear and out the other, or it's something that is offensive. 
But to God's children, the gospel is a delight. It's something precious. Now, I want you to be careful. I want you to be careful that you don't confuse intellectual stimulation about the gospel or little fleeting happy thoughts about the gospel with genuine deep gospel encouragement. We've got to be careful here. See, typically, again, I'm not going to take you to the passages here, but typically deep, genuine gospel encouragement will be accompanied by some sort of repentance, godly grief, and rich, eternal hope in Jesus. To be encouraged in the gospel, those components are going to be in there somewhere, somehow. Rich, eternal hope in Jesus. You see, only those, again, who believe the gospel are encouraged by gospel truth. We have to be careful that we don't confuse, again, intellectual stimulation or just little fleeting, happy thoughts with genuine, deep gospel encouragement. Instead, what happens is when our hearts grow cold, hard, much like Pharaoh, God can bring upon the plagues of the worst kind. And oftentimes, just like Pharaoh, it would only serve to harden our hearts further. Guys, God was doing a miraculous thing in front of Pharaoh's face. But all he felt was, this is coming against me, this is coming against me, this is coming against me, and I hate this God, and I hate this God. It would be naive of me to think that no one has grown cold or hard through the book of Ephesians. But on the other hand, on the other hand, listen, those who want to be encouraged in the Lord will be. They will be. Those who are humble and dependent on the Lord, they will be encouraged by the gospel of the Lord. Listen, I can tell you through the, the book of Ephesians particularly that I can, that the times that I've preached what I believe in my mind to be the worst sermons, that because of the word of God, not because of me, certainly in spite of me, because of the word of God, because it was proclaimed, that those who love Jesus and we're actively placing faith in him, walked away some of the most encouraged people. Listen, it's amazing. I, I, I preach what, I, in my mind, it seems like the most incoherent, like, flubber, you know, just, I, I don't even know words to describe it. It's just terrible, okay? In my mind, I'm going, that was terrible. I get more compliments, like thankfulness, rather, on those days. It can only be attributed that the God of word, the, the word of God, is what encourages people's hearts. The gospel of God encourages people's hearts. But this goes not just for someone, for sermons, but for DNA and house gathering and other relationships. Like, like I'd ask you, in, in these relationships and house gathering and DNA, do you walk away loving Jesus more or hating something else more? Do you walk away exalting Jesus more or disliking something else more? That'll tell you what your relationship's about. You see, those who want to be encouraged by something other than the gospel will go find it. And those who want to be encouraged by the gospel will find it as well. You see, listen, these people who are encouraged by the gospel, you know what they look like. You know what they look like. They're not always skipping with joy and glee, but they are generally radiating the keeping grace of God. They are generally radiating the keeping grace of God. Those who want to be encouraged by the gospel will be encouraged by the gospel. And those who don't will grow colder and colder. Remember, we've talked about this a hundred times, that when we hear the word of God, like that's heat, right? It's, it's heat applied to our lives. So that's what's happening right this very second. 
And our hearts can never remain neutral. They either grow in love for Jesus or they grow in hatred for Jesus. That's what happens. See, those who desire to hear the words of the Lord Jesus will walk away having heard the words of the Lord Jesus and they'll walk away encouraged. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Because they know his voice. So Paul is sending encouragement to those in Ephesus and he's sending encouragement to us today. Be encouraged if you love the Lord Jesus. If there's evidence of you living and walking in the Lord Jesus and you're not, like, the, the line I'd encourage you to walk is that if there are things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture that you're clearly not doing, that you're clearly disobeying, then you are likely not believing the gospel. But if you are, if you are, then be encouraged. Walk away encouraged. I'm not saying be encouraged because life feels good. Be encouraged because the gospel has rescued you, has saved you from the depth of your sin. Be encouraged. The second thing Paul says to us here in this closing is this. Be unified with your church family. Motivated by love, connected, if you will, by love because of faith. You say, Matt, why are you talking about unity in the body? I don't see it here in the passage. Well, study the passage more. I'll help you here in a second. Ephesians 6.23 says this. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's, let me help you. Peace has been a characteristic word of this letter. Peace and love, particularly peace. These are all over the place, right? Go back and read them. I don't have time right now. In the gospel section, I'm going to give you a quick overview. In the gospel section, at the beginning, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus Christ, he says, is our peace. Since he has broken down the dividing wall and created a new humanity, right? There's this peace. He talks about the phrase, so making peace. That Jesus, then he came and preached peace. Now, right? So that's this relationship, the vertical relationship. Now Paul takes that and says, okay, now what does that vertical relationship look like? So now we turn to the how we should live section or the ethical section of Ephesians. Chapters 3, I'm sorry, 4, 5, and the beginning of 6. In this section, he says, right, remember, this is in light of the peace brought by the gospel. He says this, Paul gave them this imperative. Here, here we are. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember earlier in the sermon, I said more on this in a second. Here we are. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, because you believe the gospel, do this. Because this is a reality, peace with God, do this. Paul also gave them the imperative to, in chapter 4, to forbear one another in love. Indeed, to walk in love as Christ loved us. Chapter 5. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying because of this gospel, because of this peace with God, because brought about by the gospel... If you believe that, now live in peace and unity with the body of Christ. Understand the implication here is to, again, unity with the body, not unity with a particular person. Paul is not talking about, and this is where you got to, peace be to the brothers. I think most of us read that and we just go, okay, each of us need peace. And we have that from Jesus and then we read on. <clears throat> I think you're reading too individualistically. Why? Where do where, where you get that from, Matt? Where do you get that from? Well, first of all, who's he writing to? He's writing to a church. 
He speaks to them in the plural. And the entire book, when it's talking about this idea of peace, peace with God, live in unity with the body. We have an entire chapter on this unity, I'm sorry, half a chapter, on the unity of the body. This is clearly important to Paul. So when he's saying peace to the brothers, he's not just saying, hey, each one of you have peace. He's saying, no, because of this peace that each one of you have, have peace with one another. You see, the church can be unified only as it's pervaded with love and peace. I mean, look at the context. Like, look at what happens like in chapter 2. You see, we can have no peace with the evil powers of this world. But with those whom God has rescued from the snare of the devil, those, God's people, we can live at peace with. Who are these people, right? Those who continue to demonstrate love through reconciliation. Those people who continue to live out the gospel, to be humble, to forbear in love, to live at peace. I encourage you that if you love the body, which, mind you, must include the elders, you can be at peace with the family of God. Listen. Let me give you a point of some other practical application. You can even be at peace with a local family of God and leave it. Because I don't want you to get this misconception that you're only at peace with God if you stay at Renovation Church your entire life. I don't want to give that, I want to fight against that perception. So you can even be at peace with a local family of God and leave it. But let me tell you a couple things. Based on Ephesians, what it doesn't look like. Just two. There's many. I'm going to give you two. Number one, it doesn't look like stirring up division on your way out. It doesn't look that way. It doesn't look like gossiping and hurting people. It doesn't look that way. That's not being at peace. Second thing, it does not look like. You can't get there from Ephesians or the rest of the Bible, mind you. Number two, it doesn't look like simply informing. Instead of earnestly, humbly, What's he say? Eager to maintain unity in the bond. The unity of the Spirit, right? Eager to maintain unity. What's that even mean? It means you fight for it. You wrestle for it. It means you forbear for it. You seek understanding and truth. What's Paul say? Chapter 4, this is not going to be up on the screen. 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Right, This is the beginning of the ethical section. The beginning. Clearly this is very important to Paul. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now what does that manner look like? Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. Eager to maintain unity. Listen, I would encourage you, church. I'd encourage you. If any of you have left a church at any point in your past, I'm not telling you that you need to go back to that church and be a member there, but I would encourage you that if you have done anything that is sinful, that you would go back to them, go back to the pastor, pastors, and just repent to them. Tell them you're sorry. Ask for their forgiveness. Let them tell the church. 
It doesn't mean you have to go back there and be a member, but be reconciled with them. The reality is that some of your covenant even here might be being negatively impacted because of unconfessed and repented of sin in the past. But what does it look like to live at peace with the local body and leave it? You don't stir up division on the way out. Instead, you can have your reasons, that's fine, and go. Speak grace to those people that you leave behind. And two, you are eager to maintain unity. Eager, you fight for it. See, people who do this, people who do or leave or are not at peace like this are people who have no peace with God. They think they can have peace by some other means. But to live at peace, again, with God, will show itself this way. To leave at peace is to leave while encouraging the unity of the body of Christ. Not just saying publicly that you want that and then having dark conversations about it in private. But where love abounds, peace will abound all the more. Again, I don't want to give this impression that you can't leave and still be at peace. No, you can. There's just a right way to do it. There's this love and this peace. They're connected. Why? Because love leads our actions to be more about God's desires than ours. We love Him. This love, again, we're going to, he's going to talk about this love of Jesus, but right now, and love with faith. Faith what? Love and faith and peace from what? From God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this love and this peace is birthed from the gospel and therefore will birth gospel living. <clears throat> Last kind of thought there is that love for the people of God that would, would motivate peace and is birthed from faith in the Lord Jesus and the work of the Father. Paul says this idea of with faith, like love and peace with faith, with faith. Paul's probably thinking of faith as a characteristic that they already have rather than as just something else he wants them to be given. You see, this love, that's all I want you to see, is that this love is connected to faith. And faith comes from the Father, first loving us. You can go to 1 John to see that. Faith what? Faith that I'm loved by the Father. That Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are true. And that the gospel now is running course in my life, running its course in my life. You see, these are the people who love God and love other people. They live at peace with God and live at peace with other people. Last big thought. Paul says this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be, in verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. <clears throat> this is such a great closing to this book. Such a good last line. Paul is doing this. He's characterizing his readers by a love for Jesus. He's describing them. Like he's, he's using this as a, as a categorical like characterization. Love is such an emphasis in this letter. I would argue it's an emphasis from Genesis to Revelation. But certainly in this letter, the letter talks about the unfathomable love of God. Go back and read chapter 1. The love of God is all over the place. Notice what Paul says here that he hasn't said in the entire letter so far. 
he talks about the readers loving God, their love for Christ. That's, it's implied everywhere else. Now he makes it very explicit in his last few words of the book. He closes with a statement about their personal relationship with Jesus. And Paul, again, just told us about God's great love all throughout this book. And then he says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus. I think the appropriate question for us to ask right at this moment is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I'm not, I didn't ask, do you love a religion? I didn't ask, do you love doing righteous things? I didn't ask, do you love doing good things. I didn't ask, do you love your membership at a church? I didn't ask if you love the good things that Jesus talks about. I didn't ask, do you love the idea of going to heaven or the idea of avoiding hell? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Are you truly a Christian? Have you turned from sin and placed faith in Him alone? If not, you may not be a Christian. But I would ask you, if you consider yourself a Christian, the next question is this. I could try to help us think, do I love Jesus? Here would be some diagnostic questions. Are you turning from sin daily? Are you seeking unity daily? I mean, there's lots of other things that you, we can ask. Are you turning from unrighteousness daily? Are you ministers of reconciliation regularly? Like, there's lots of questions we can ask because, see, this love for Jesus is not just some thing that's in a kind of in a vacuum. Like, it just it's kind of up there. I love Jesus, and there's no connectedness to the way it looks over here. No, it looks a very specific way, and that's what Paul spends chapters 4, 5, and 6 telling us, that your love for Jesus is going to look like this. But the question is, is do you love Jesus? Unfortunately, I think that many of us have fallen more in love with just the idea of being righteous. These are just the right things to do. And our experience, experience of the nurturing and tender kindness of Jesus that ignites and fuels our love for Jesus and our subsequent righteousness then is just not there. <clears throat> I think for many of us in this room, we love Jesus like we love our jobs. Some days we enjoy it. Other days we're indifferent. But we always love the thought of the paycheck. I wonder if many of us are more in love with the idea of avoiding hell than we are with the idea of spending an eternity at the feet of Jesus. If that's the case, you don't love Jesus. You love the idea of avoiding hell. Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, grace to those who love Jesus. Grace to you. Not grace to just anybody. Not grace to church people. Not grace to people who go to church or people who are members of a church. But grace to those who love Jesus. Now again, those who love Jesus, their lives are going to be molded and and made into the image of Jesus, so it's going to start looking like these other things. But they are people who are motivated in what they do out of the love that they reciprocate to Jesus because He first loved us. Why? Because those who don't love Jesus will not heed the encouragement of this letter. But to those who love Jesus, to those whose hearts, like figure. 
Those whose hearts beat for Jesus. To those who run to Him in trial and suffering. To those who constantly grasp for hope in the gospel, reaching to it. Oh, help my unbelief. To those who have abandoned or trying and striving daily to abandon dependence on self in order to grab a hold of dependence on God. These are the people that love Jesus. To those who cling to the cross in the face of unrighteousness, even in their own life. To those whose hearts are melted by the atoning work of their Savior. We sing full atonement, can it be? What's that do? What affections does that stir? Does it stir any? Full atonement. And as the, as the songwriter says, can it be? Like, is that even possible for such a sinner as I? But hallelujah, what a Savior. To those who are overcoming sin, you, you love Jesus. To these people, Paul is saying this. Paul is praying for God to show them unmerited favor. To shower upon those people grace upon grace upon grace. So what about that last little line there? It says, what's it say there at the very end? With love, grace be to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Incorruptible. What, what, what does that mean? I think it looks, I think it's pretty plain in the ESV that this love for Jesus looks incorruptible. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is praying for God to be gracious to those who love and to those whose love for the Lord Jesus Christ is this. Free from every element liable to corruption. I'm going to explain that. I don't think Paul's talking here about perfect love. Paul understands we're not going to have a perfect love. Like That'll come when the flesh is removed and we move on to glory. But a love that's incorruptible. I would encourage you to think back to like Luke 14. I think it's Luke 14. Where he talks about love for, uh, like our love for God is to be so exclusive that it makes our love for everything else look like hatred. You know, he's talking about uh, hating you unless you hate your mother, father, brother, sister, so on and so forth. That's the passage I'm talking about. That unless we have this love for God, and, 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 and I think what that passage is teaching is that we have this love for God that it's so exclusive that indeed we actually love the people out of that love of God. Because only his love is incorruptible. On a practical measure, on a practical note, here's what Paul means. We are to love the Lord in a way that is untainted by the darkness in which we once lived. This is the practical encouragement Paul is saying. To love the Lord in a way that's untainted by the darkness in which we once lived. We're to love the Lord in a way that doesn't look like this. Let me read for you Ephesians 2, 1-3. through 3. 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. Again, so we love Jesus in a way that doesn't look like following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's saying we are to love Jesus in a way that is untainted by this. Why? Why are we to love the Lord this way? How are we to love the Lord this way? Because we've experienced the grace, love, and peace of God through faith in the gospel. That He's done this. Because we have been rescued by His great gospel. If that's where our hope is, then this love can grow in looking in this way that is incorruptible. This love that comes only from the Father because He first loved us. That's why Paul starts, right? Starts in chapter 1. Let me read for you in closing these words. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 10. If you have your Bibles, please go there. Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So we, how do we even think about this loving Jesus with a love that's incorruptible? <clears throat> it's only possible because of these words. It's only possible if He first loves us. It's only possible if the love of which we love Jesus is to be untainted by these things is if it's the love that God first had for us that we return to Him. You see, those who love Jesus, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Why? Because the gospel is true. You can believe it by faith. Believe the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that anything that is simply my words and not founded on the word of God would just be burned from our ears. Father, I pray that every word is spoken today, every song that is sung that accurately represents your words, that they would be burned onto our hearts to stay for eternity. Father, I pray, give us faith. Give us faith. Give us love for your son, Jesus. Give us love for him. So many things in this life would be so unimportant to us if we just loved Jesus supremely. May that be increasingly true of us, that we would love Jesus, that so many things would fade as very unimportant to us. 
that he would emerge then, if we love him supremely, then in our lives he is displayed as the exalted one. Father, may you be enthroned on the praises of your people. Father, encourage our hearts in a way that only your spirit and your word can do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.